Chapter thirty one of Colonel Quaritch VC. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch VC by H. Ryder Haggart. Chapter thirty one Ida recants. The two great doctors came, and the two great doctors pocketed their hundred guinea fee and went but neither the one nor the other, nor eke the twain, could commit themselves to a fixed opinion as to Edward Cossey's chances of life or death. However, one of them picked out a number of shot from the wounded man, and a number more he left in because he could not pick them out, and they both agreed that the treatment of their humble local brethren was all that could be desired, and so far as they were concerned there was an end of it. A week had passed, and Edward Cossey, nursed night and day by Bella Quest, still hovered between life and death. It was a Thursday, and Harold had walked up to the castle to give the squire the latest news of the wounded man. While he was in the vestibule, telling what he had to tell to Mr. de la Mole and Ida, a man whom he recognized as one of Mr. Quest's clerks rang the bell. He was shown in and handed the squire a fully addressed brief envelope which, he said, he had been told to deliver by Mr. Quest, and, saying that there was no answer, bowed himself out. As soon as he was gone, the envelope was opened by Mr. de la Mole, who took from it two legal documents which he went on to read. Suddenly the first dropped from his hand, and with an exclamation he snatched at the second. "'What is it, father?' asked Ida. "'What is it? Why, it's just this.' Edward Cossey has transferred the mortgages over this property to Quest, the lawyer, and Quest has served a notice on me calling in the money. And he began to walk up and down the room in a state of great agitation. I don't quite understand, said Ida, her breast heaving, and with a curious light shining in her eyes. Don't you? said her father. Then perhaps you will read that. And he pushed the papers to her. As he did so, another letter, which he had not observed, fell out of them. At this point, Harold rose to go. "'Don't go, Quaritch, don't go,' said the squire. "'I shall be glad of your advice, and I am sure that what you hear will not go any further.' At the same time, Ida motioned him to stay, and though somewhat unwilling, he did so. "'Dear sir,' began the squire, reading the letter aloud, "'enclosed you will find the usual formal notices,' calling in the sum of thirty thousand pounds, recently advanced upon your mortgage of the Honham Castle Estates by Edward Cossey Esquire. These mortgages have passed into my possession for value received, and it is now my desire to realize them. I most deeply regret being forced to press an old client, but my circumstances are such that I am obliged so to do. If I can in any way facilitate your efforts to raise the money, I shall be very glad to do so, but in the extent of the money not being forthcoming at the end of the six months' notice, the ordinary steps will be taken to realize by foreclosure. I am, dear sir, yours truly, W. Quest. James de la Mole, Esquire, J.P. I see now, said Ida, Mr. Cossey has no further hold on the mortgages or on the property. That's it, said the squire. He has transferred them to that rascally lawyer, and yet he told me, I can't understand it, I really can't. At this point the colonel insisted upon departing, 
saying that he would call in again in the evening to see if he could be of any assistance. When he was gone, Ida spoke in a cold, determined voice. Mr. Cossey told me that when we married, he would put those mortgages in the fire. It now seems that the mortgages were not his to dispose of, or else that he has since transferred them to Mr. Quest without informing us. Yes, I suppose so, said the squire. Very well, said Ida, and now, father, I will tell you something. I engaged myself, or, to be more accurate, I promised to engage myself to Edward Cossey on the condition that he would take up these mortgages when Cossey and son were threatening to foreclose, or whatever it is called. Good heavens, said her astonished father. What an idea. I did it, went on Ida, and he took up the mortgages, and in due course he claimed my promise, and I became engaged to marry him, though that engagement was most repugnant to me. You will see that, having persuaded him to advance the money, I could not refuse to carry out my share of the bargain. Well, said the squire, this is all news to me. Yes, she answered, and I should never have told you of it had it not been for this sudden change in the position of affairs. What I did, I did to save our family from ruin. But now it seems that Mr. Cossey has played us false, and that we are to be ruined after all. Therefore the condition upon which I promised to marry him has not been carried out, and my promise falls to the ground. You mean that, supposing he lives, you will not marry Edward Cossey? Yes, I do mean it. The squire thought for a minute. This is a very serious step, Ida, he said. I don't mean that I think that the man has behaved well, but still he may have given up the mortgages to Mr. Quest under pressure of some sort, and might be willing to find the money to meet them. I do not care if he finds the money ten times over, said Ida. I will not marry him. He has not kept the letter of his bond, and I will not keep to mine. It is all very well, Ida, said the squire, and of course nobody can force you into a distasteful marriage, but I wish to point out to you one thing. You have your family to think of as well as yourself. I tell you frankly that I do not believe that, as times are, it will be possible to raise thirty thousand pounds to pay off the charges, unless it is by the help of Edward Cossey. So if he lives, and as he has lasted so long, I expect that he will live, and you refuse to go on with your engagement to him, we shall be sold up, and that is all, for that fellow Quest, confound him, will show us no mercy. I know it, father, answered Ida, but I cannot and will not marry him, and I do not think you can expect me to. I got engaged, or rather promised to get engaged to him, because I thought that one woman had no right to put her own happiness before the welfare of an old family like ours, and I would have carried out that engagement at any cost. But since then, to tell you the truth, and she blushed deeply, not only have I learned to dislike him a great deal more, but I have come to care for someone else who also cares for me, and who, therefore, has a right to be considered. Think, father, what it means to a woman to sell herself into bodily and mental bondage when she cares for another man. Well, well, said her father, with some irritation, I am no authority upon matters of sentiment. They are not in my line, and I know that women have their prejudices. Still, you can't expect me to look at the matter in quite the same light as you do. And who is the gentleman, Colonel Quaritch? She nodded her head. Oh, said the squire, I have nothing to say against Quaritch. Indeed, I like the man. 
but I suppose that if he has five hundred pounds a year, that is every sixpence he can count on. I had rather marry him upon five hundred a year than Edward Cossey upon fifty thousand. Ah, yes, I have heard women talk like that before, though perhaps they think differently afterwards. Of course, I have no right to obtrude myself, but when you are comfortably married, what is going to become of Honham? I should like to know, and incidentally, of me. I don't know, father dear, she answered, her eyes filling with tears. We must trust to Providence, I suppose. I know you think me very selfish, she went on, catching him by the arm. But, oh, father, there are things that are worse than death to women, or at least to some women. I almost think that I would rather die than marry Edward Cossey, though I would have gone through with it if he had kept his word. No, no, said her father, I can't wonder at it, and certainly I do not ask you to marry a man you dislike. But still, it is hard upon me to have all this trouble at my age, and the old place coming to the hammer too. It is enough to make a man wish that his troubles were over altogether. However, we must take things as we find them, and we find them pretty rough. Quaritch said he was coming back this evening, didn't he? I suppose there will not be any public engagement at present, will there? And look here, Ida, I don't want him to come talking to me about it. I have got enough things of my own to think of without bothering my head about your love affairs. Pray let the thing be for the present. And now I am going out to see that fellow George, who hasn't been here since he came back from London, and a nice bit of news it will be that I shall have to tell him. When her father had gone, Ida did a thing she had not done for some time. She wept a little. All her fine intentions of self-denial had broken down, and she felt humiliated at the fact. She had intended to sacrifice herself upon the altar of her duty, and to make herself the wedded wife of a man who was repugnant to her, and now, on the first opportunity, she had thrown up the contract on a quibble, a point of law as it were. Nature had been so strong for her, as it often is for people with deep feelings. She could not do it, no, not to save Honham from the hammer. When she had promised that she would engage herself to Edward Cossey, she had not been in love with Colonel Quaritch. Now she was, and the difference between the two states was considerable. Still, the fall was a humiliating one to her pride, and what is more, she felt that her father was disappointed in her. Of course, she could not expect him at his age. When looked at through the mist of years, all sentiment appears more or less foolish to enter into her private feelings. She knew very well that age strips men of those finer sympathies and sensibilities which clothe them in youth, much as the winter frosts and winds strip the delicate foliage from the trees. For to them the music of the world is dead. Love has vanished with the summer dews, and in its place are cutting blasts and snows, and mere memories rustling like fallen leaves about their feet. As we grow old, we are apt to grow away from beauty and what is high and pure. Our hearts harden by contact with the hard world. We examine love and find, or think we find, that it is not but a variety of lust, friendship, and think it self-interest, religion, and name it superstition. The facts of life alone remain clear and desirable. We know that money means power, and we turn our face to mammon and if he smiles upon us, we are content to let our finer visions go where our youth has gone. Quote, 
trailing clouds of glory do we come from god who is our home Unquote. so says the poet but alas the clouds soon melt into the grey air of the world and so any of us before our course is finished forget that they ever were and yet which is the shadow of the truth those dreams and hopes and aspirations of our younger life or the grimy corruption with which the world cakes our souls she knew that she could not expect her father to sympathize with her she knew that to his judgment circumstances being the same and both suitors being equally sound in wind and limb the choice of one of them should be a matter to be decided by the exterior consideration of wealth and general convenience for men and especially old men who are interested in the matter putting aside their contempt of sentiment little understand the preferences of women since the world began women have been an article of commerce and in their hearts many men look upon them as an article of commerce still creatures incapable of any real feeling except of course the natural maternal instinct and quite ready to accommodate themselves to any master which fate gives them it is however only fair to say that they also sometimes reach that conclusion by study from the life rather than from the inherited tradition however ida had made her choice made it suddenly but none the less had made it it lay between her father's interest and the interest of the family at large and her own honour as a woman for the mere empty ceremony of marriage which satisfied the world cannot make dishonour an honourable thing she had made her choice and the readers of her history must judge if that choice were right or wrong after dinner harold came again as he had promised the squire was not in the drawing-room when he was shown in ida rose to greet him with a sweet and happy smile upon her face for in the presence of her lover all doubt and troubles vanished like a mist i have a bit of good news for you said he trying to look as though he were rejoiced to give it edward cossey has taken a wonderful turn for the better they say that he will certainly recover oh she answered colouring a little and now i have a bit of news for you colonel quaritch my engagement with mr edward cossey is at an end i shall not marry him are you sure said harold with a gasp quite sure i have made up my mind and she held out her hand as though to seal her words he took it and kissed it thank god ida he said yes she answered thank god and at that moment the squire came in looking very miserable and depressed and of course nothing more was said about the matter End of chapter 31